Hello, and welcome to the Methods of Rationality podcast. This week we bring you The Study of Anglophysics by Scott Alexander. Part 1 1. Dear Dr. McCord, Seven years ago, our research staff read with interest your work on Berkeleyan idealism. We were particularly fascinated by your seemingly outrageous claim that it might be possible for individuals to imagine mental worlds so strongly that they would take on a reality of their own. At the time, our laboratory had an interest in novel solutions to the overpopulation problem. We embarked upon a test project to see whether a parallel world could be imaged and then colonized by citizens from our own dimension. Using advanced science you could not possibly comprehend, we came up with a practical implementation of your idea. Dr. Michael Adwell, whom I believe you met during your time in Oxford, volunteered to enter the device we had constructed as our first research subject. We very briefly imaged an alternate world based on the contents of Dr. Adwell's mind before the good doctor unfortunately had a grand mal seizure. He was disconnected from the device and rushed to the hospital, where he passed away several hours later. Two years ago, we revisited some of our calculations on the project and determined, to our surprise, that the world Dr. Adwell had created might still exist in some sense, that it had somehow managed to sustain itself separate from the doctor's mental activity. We worked feverishly to construct a device that might let us interact with his imaged world. Six months ago, we succeeded. The computational demands of the machine were immense, but after throwing the remainder of our budget for the year at the Kyoto Supercomputing Laboratory, we were able to rent enough processing power to translate myself and Dr. Lachlan Fairchild into the imaged world, which we dubbed Adwellia after our late colleague. Our superiors informed us that when the next fiscal year rolled around in four months, there would be enough money in the budget to translate us back home. 2. On first arrival, Adwellia seemed much like home. We landed on the shores of a small lake in what seemed to be a wooded area. Since it was getting dark, we soon set to pitching camp for the night. Our first unpleasant surprise was that the kerosene heater we had brought with us wouldn't work leaving us cold and disheartened. Lachlan collected some logs to build a fire, but our matches didn't seem to work either. I remembered the seventh page of your paper, where you had posited that an imaged world would run on the same physics of our own world, since it would be bound by the expectations of the imager. Dr. Adwell had certainly understood enough chemistry to know that matches should start fires, but it seemed one of our most basic predictions had already failed. I will not say whether we were more motivated by curiosity or by the bitter cold, but we tried dozens of different branches. Small, large, young and green, old and rotting, and everything from dousing them in kerosene to the old-fashioned method of rubbing sticks together to create friction. Finally, I succeeded in getting some branches from an old fir tree to alight. In relief, the two of us huddled close to the fire but our curiosity was only heightened when we found the area near the fire to be unmistakably colder than the surrounding air. Here, our chill overcame our scientific spirit, and we decided to deal with the problem in the morning. We got into our two thin thermal sleeping bags and passed a miserable and freezing night. 
When we awoke, the fire had gone out, and in its place stood a pile of hats, twenty of them to be precise. I would have called them fedoras, although Lachlan said that the particular style was more popularly known as a Homburg. We debated taking the hats, but we had been thoroughly spooked. Instead, we picked up our camp and journeyed south, where it looked like the wood was beginning to thin out. Around midday we spotted smoke, and dared to hope we were coming upon a settlement. By evening our guess was confirmed, and we saw a village of conical adobe huts. We prepared to gesture our request to trade trinkets for lodging to the inhabitants, who were far too dark-skinned to be European, but who did not quite pattern match to my memories of any particular human race. Imagine our surprise when we found they spoke English, though with abominable grammar. The headman introduced himself as Soman, and was all too happy to accept our trinkets in exchange for a nice warm hut to spend the night in. We endeavored to learn more about these people in the morning, but by this time were tired enough to call it a night. We could not help inspecting the heating mechanism in our room, which seemed to be a mud bowl in which sheaves of wheat, small rocks, and little mud figurines that looked like people had been placed. Totally absent any visible mechanism, the setup was emitting heat. And what was more, a ball set in a track along the edge of the bowl moved continuously around in what seemed to all the world to be perpetual motion, making an annoying crackling sound as it passed over little leaves set in the rim. We had only a little time to exchange theories before falling into a deep sleep. The next morning, the bowl was no longer warm, the ball had stopped moving, and the objects within had apparently transmogrified into a miniature wheelbarrow. This was strange magic. The villagers were already up and about, so we found Soman and tried to get some better conversation in. We are scientists, we told him, from far away, looking to gain a better understanding of how things work here. Here in Mugginaw, asked Soman, using what we later found was the name of the village. Not well. He smiled, showing very pearly teeth. We were hoping to set up a laboratory, a few metal huts, and a big machine, maybe on the outskirts of town. We would pay you for food, maybe for help with certain things. We have many tools to trade, and lots of gold and metal. Not exactly true. What we had was a portable nanofactory, translated in with us as an easier alternative to bringing supplies. But we could get tools or transmute elements pretty quickly. Is of course, said Soman, with the delight of someone who had stumbled entirely by accident into a beneficial arrangement. What will you be needing? Well, the first thing, interrupted Lachlan, is we wanted to know how your heating device works, the one with the wheat and the rocks. It was new to us. You not have this in your village? said Soman with a frown. Is not obvious? No, I said. Where we come from, it's not obvious at all. Soman brightened. Your village not know true names. He picked up a rock from the ground. True name of this is Rock. We both nodded, mystified. He grabbed a sheaf of wheat from a passing villager who gave him a glare. True name is Wheat. He said it with the same mystical intonation with which one of our colleagues back at the laboratory would announce a particularly earth-shattering result. 
Yes, okay. I actually think we do know the true names of things. It's the same in our language. Now it was Soman's turn to be mystified. Then where's confusion? The heating device. How does it work? Is obvious, said Soman, like we were idiots. Wheat and rock and art become work and heat and cart. The work push little ball around, then ball make noise, continuing reaction. But, I interjected, because it looked like Lachlan wanted to grab the headman and wring his neck. Why do the wheat and rock and art become work and heat and cart? Is true names, said Soman and shrugged. Holy shit, said Lachlan at exactly the instant when I remained just as confused as I had been before. I stared at him. Holy shit, this world fucking runs on anagrams. English language anagrams. Wittgenstein once said that the limits of our language are the limits of our world. Some say that mathematics is the language of God. Maybe that was why our world ran on math. Well, English had been the language of Dr. Adwell. It had been the lens through which he made sense of reality. Maybe our hypothesis that his imagined world would run on the same physics as our own had been premature. What if his world ran on English? The fire, fir branches and heat, said Lachlan, who as usual was a step ahead of me. Fir plus heat becomes fire plus hat. So it removed heat from the atmosphere and created fire and a hat. Twenty hats, I reminded him. Lachlan was already deep in thought. It's all stoichiometry. In our world, water is H2O. H-O-H. Here, a fir tree has to be literally made of F-I-R. 26 letter elements forming a near-infinite amount of word molecules. Suppose we burned 3 kilograms of fir branches. Don't know the molar weight here, but suppose each letter weighs the same, and there's 1 mole per kilogram. Just bear with me. There's one mole each of F, I, and R. So it must have absorbed some sort of four mole equivalent amount of heat, whatever that means, and then spit out three moles of hats and four moles of fire. Three moles of hats in this system would be three kilograms of hats. That would mean each hat weighs 150 grams. It all checks out. Soman, quick, show us how you make something else. Soman looked at him. The headman seemed as confused as I was, but for different reasons. Make uh, what? I don't know. Clothes? Tools? Anything. My daughter Jania live in here. Gesturing to a hut on the outskirts of town with some smoke coming out of it. She is Weaver. The Weaver actually seemed to be performing some sort of complicated chemical reaction. She was holding beets over a cauldron that was bubbling up into a primitive fume hood, then throwing them into what seemed like a vat of tar. Water was running out a hole in one side, and on the other, a roll of cloth was getting steadily longer. This time I got it before Lachlan. Chlorine, I said. Chlorine plus beets plus tar becomes cloth plus brine plus tears. That's not right. You're missing an E. No, I'm not. It consumes twice as much tar as chlorine or beets, and produces twice as many tears as brine or cloth. I think that we had better get our laboratory set up sooner rather than later. 3. This we did at record speed.
Not wanting to frighten the villagers or expose ourselves to prying eyes, we set ourselves a kilometer south of town on a cape overlooking a great sea. On the headlands of the cape was a small hill from which you could see for miles, and there we completed the week or so's work of getting the nanofactory up and running. Its first job was to extrude us two aluminum Quonset huts, which became our homes away from home. From our little encampment, the ocean stretched on as far as we could see. I wondered if there were other continents on this world. Figuring out its size really should have been one of our first priorities. But we were too fascinated by this world's weird linguistic elements and reactions, anglophysics, we dubbed them, to properly investigate anything else. The first and most obvious question was why everything wasn't reacting all the time. How come every time someone touched a rock, the skin plus rock didn't become corks plus ink? Just the air alone should have destroyed a wide variety of objects. Oh, come on, I told Lachlan. The air doesn't count. Lachlan had then gone on to prove me wrong by getting the iron tools we had brought to rust, then proving the rust happened faster in moist air and air that was full of dust particles. Air plus iron plus dust equals rust plus ions plus arid. Things aren't rusting in this world because of oxidation. As long as it can suck dust and moisture from the air, it's rusting by crazy anagram logic. So the air definitely counted. The first thing we discovered was that nature abhorred non-words. Air and dust wouldn't react on their own to become rust and IA because IA wasn't a thing. What about AI? Why not Rust plus an intelligent computer? At the time, my answer was, Shut up! The world might hear you! I would later learn that this was not nearly as funny as I thought. But at the time, we made quick progress. Simple materials and short words seemed to be most stable, with complicated or abstract concepts rarely forming spontaneously, which, at least, answered our AI problem and reactions usually wouldn't happen at all without sound, which seemed to play the same role in this world that heat did in ours. Lachlan had suspected this almost from the beginning, that the crackling leaves underneath the ball had provided the sound energy to continue fueling the reaction that kept us warm that first night. But it wasn't until we heard the cacophony of a village festival that we knew we were on the right track. What are you doing? I had yelled at Soman over the din of drums and cymbals and screaming villagers. Making beer! It had turned out that the villagers used pea and bran to produce beer and pans, but that the reaction went unpleasantly slowly unless they shouted it along. The shouting was, of course, egged on by the beer they had already produced, which sort of made it an autocatalytic reaction if you squinted. They offered us some of their beer, but even though I knew things worked differently here, my standards were a little too high to drink beer literally made of pee. And so we returned to the lab. On our trip back, 
Lachlan pointed out that all the villagers' iron tools had been carefully taken inside during the festival, so that the noise would not cause them to rust. Our next big discovery was a week later. I woke up at 7am with Lachlan pounding on the door of my aluminum hut. Omar, take a look at this! Sitting on his palm was a one-inch tall man, naked and hairless, looking terrified. He looked like he would have run off if there was anywhere to run to. What in the... I found a volcanic vent up in the hills to the west. There was a source of methane. I broke it down into heat and men, but there wasn't enough men to form someone full-sized. So I got this. Lachlan, you've got to help him! Lachlan gave a grunt, as if annoyed to be reminded of the ethical implications of his work. Uh, how? Can you speak language? I asked the little man on Lachlan's palm. In response, the man screamed. I took that as a no. So I dragged Lachlan down to the village where I woke up and annoyed Soman. Soman, we found a way to break methane into... Soman's eyes went wide. Then he got angry. No methane is taboo. Well... He saw the homunculus in Lachlan's palm. With a deft motion belying his age, he yanked the little creature away from Lachlan and snapped its neck. I gasped. <gasps> Lachlan looked annoyed. It's taboo! These things not men, no speech, no mind, must not make. Little man is taboo. Methane is taboo. If you make little man, no longer stay with us. I calmed him down, promised him we wouldn't be doing any more experiments with methane, said that we were new here, didn't know what we were doing. I asked him for more advice, asked him about any other taboos. He seemed irritated, assumed we should know what they were, seemed to think less of us with each question indicating our ignorance. Finally, we gave up and made the long trek back to our laboratory. Our next few weeks of experiments were less bloody, but still exciting. Suppose we took a mop and the guts of an animal and shouted at them until mop plus gut reacted to pot plus gum. Would the pot be the cooking implement, or would it be marijuana? For that matter, why shouldn't it be a top, the child's toy? Why shouldn't the gum form a mug fit to drink coffee from? In our first experiment, we surrounded our apparatus with pans and food and were unsurprised to find we ended up with cooking implements. We repeated the experiment, but this time surrounded the apparatus with bongs, tobacco, and other drug paraphernalia. This time, we got marijuana. We wanted to get a playful child to see if we could produce tops, but news of our work with methane had gotten out and spooked the villagers and they were understandably unwilling to let us borrow one of their children. The third experiment was, in my opinion, the key to this entire process. This time, we surrounded the apparatus with pans and food, but both Lachlan and I concentrated very, very hard on marijuana and talked about marijuana with each other while the loudspeakers the nanofactory had extruded blasted sound at the reactants. And sure enough, we got marijuana. Somehow, our expectations were guiding the physics in a way that the letters themselves couldn't. I started to wonder what had become of poor Dr. Adwell. 
was the god of this world a deist who had created it shortly before dying in a hospital ICU in a very different planet? Or was he, in some sense, still here, still actively guiding things? The reaction that rusted iron started to seem more and more suspicious. What about that arid? In our experiments, making adjectives had been impossible, requiring more sound catalyses than any noun we had encountered so far. But arid seemed to form of its own accord. What if Adwell somehow remembered that iron was supposed to rust? and privileged that reaction as the sort of thing that ought to go on? What if the reason everything didn't implode upon itself was Adwell ensuring that everything in his imagined world happened according to some plan? Then our proof that we could alter our results through concentration and careful priming would take on a whole new meaning. Did reminding God what chemical reaction we wanted change experimental results. 4. We're going about this half-acidly, Lachlan told me one morning our sixth week in Adwellia. All of this looking for clever anagrams is taking up too much of our time, delaying us in supremely great work. We need to do this analytically. Get a bottle of A's, a bottle of B's, so we can create whatever the hell we want. This proved easier said than done. We got the nanofactory to extrude us a very complex apparatus, a centrifuge, and what we took to calling the sonic ray, a machine that made deafening noise along a very narrow arc, which could catalyze reactions much faster than shouting or drumming. It turned out to be the key to making far more complex products than we had previously attempted, but our first use was a plain and simple failure. We had decided to start with granite, which we would break down into tin, rags, and the letter E. We would then centrifuge the decay products with the three-letter tin and rags going one way and the pure E going another. Nature, remember, abhors non-words. No sooner had we forced some E into a test tube than the tube itself transformed in a great explosion to gelatin and a tiny, near-microscopic donkey. E plus glass equals gel and ass. We couldn't say we couldn't have seen it coming. It could have been worse. I was just glad that Dr. Adwell's ascended mind's first association with the latter word was donkey. We tried the experiment again with a zinc vial. Zinc because it was implausible that there was a zinc plus E anagram lurking out there, and ended up with a mat of eels. Through this whole time, we had been debating the problem of ambiguity. Who was to say that our granite was granite, rather than rock or even stone? And the answer seemed to be that Dr. Adwell, or whoever was watching upstairs, was mostly sympathetic to our efforts. Well, the sympathy ended when we started trying to isolate single letters. Zinc became metal, and thence eel mats. Our effort with mud was even worse. We put a lot of time into making sure the mud we got was very classically mud. Not ooze, not muck, certainly not dirt. And there was no good way mud plus E was becoming anything. We turned on the device. 
the ease disappeared. Seriously. Granite went into the centrifuge, tin came out, but there was no sign of an E anywhere, and rather fewer rags than usual. This is really weird. Thanks, Einstein. I never would have figured that out without your fucking commentary! I should have told him to calm down, but the experiment had upset me, too. Well, it wasn't my bright idea to try to isolate all the letters! Which reminds me, if you think I'm going through this 25 more times, you can go fuck yourself! Lachlan swung at me, missing by an inch. I kicked him right in the knee, and he fell into the experimental apparatus, knocking the whole thing over. Both of us went down with it. For a second, the sonic death ray shot straight at us. And then its safety kicked in and it turned off. We sat there, stunned, bruised, in pain. Rage. Granite becomes ten plus rage. Holy fuck, we created an emotion. It had happened before, sort of. The wheat and rock and art, they had come together to produce work, which was an abstract concept. But it was still in the domain of physics. Work seemed like the sort of thing that could come out of a chemical reaction, kind of like heat. But rage? This was something really new. That night, we made the short trek into the village and asked Soman what he thought. Rarely, or sometimes when festival is very loud, strange things happen. Should avoid. Very bad. This is taboo. The next week, I knew something was up. Lachlan was missing our daily debriefings, not getting any work done. Finally, I broke the most important unwritten rule of our little community. I went into his aluminum hut without knocking. There he was, sitting with a blissed-out look on his face. Beside his bed sat a miniature version of our experimental apparatus, complete with its own sonic death ray. He must have privately ordered it from the nanofactory, then deleted the records. It was reacting little tchotchkes from the village, dolls, balls, play swords, with our glass specimen jars. Tar was streaming into the waste bin. I turned off the sonic ray. Lachlan awoke with a start. He seemed about as angry as he'd been the time we accidentally produced rage from granite, but this time I knew he had a less noble reason. What the fuck are you doing barging in here like this? You've gotten yourself addicted. Addicted to joy. Lachlan didn't deny it, as his toy plus jar to joy plus tar reactor was right there. Look, it's been two months now, stuck in this stupid world. It's going to be another two before the lab brings us back home. The villages are crazy, physics runs on English, and the nanofactory can't produce any entertainment that's remotely entertaining. The letter isolation project is a failure. You, no offense, are one of the most boring people I've ever met. And when I try to get some of the village women to look at me, they murmur something about taboos and give me the cold shoulder. Give me a break here, Omar. Locke, you're neglecting your work. We still haven't gotten anywhere near the bottom of Anglophysics, let alone figured out the most basic stuff about this world, like how big it is. Your sitting here, blissing out on raw linguistic joy, isn't something we can afford right now. Fuck you. 
but he didn't protest as I picked up his mini-apparatus and brought it to the nanofactory's disassembler chute, nor as I reprogrammed the nanofactory to make sure all its records would be public from now on. End first half of the study of Anglophysics. Dwayne Bradle is Lachlan. Brian Jones is Somon. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. The intro and outro music is Tentacles by the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. Thank you for listening, and come back in two weeks for the conclusion to the study of Anglophysics. Anglophysics.